You're listening to Creatives Prevail, unraveling the stories of creative professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creatives Prevail. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and we have a very special guest on this episode. It is Arash Darudi, General Counsel and Executive Vice President of Fender and President of Fender Play. In this episode, we discuss about how he joined Fender and what his day-to-day looks like within the company with his multiple roles. In addition, we also deep dive into the future of the metaverse as well as the impact of AI in the music industry. Let's get into it. Hey, Arash, how's it going? I'm fantastic, Mike. Thank you so much for doing this. This was this was actually a, a, a production in the works, and this, this is probably one of the most elaborate setups so far for the Creatives Prevail podcast. And I want to thank you so much because you were the one who were like, "Hey, let's just go ahead. I'm going to be in Scottsdale, and we're just going to go ahead and you know do it this amazing space, which uh, is called Underground Sound." Right? Absolutely, yeah. No, thanks to John Summers who owns Underground Sound. This is an incredible space, as you yeah. can see. Um, you know, I reached out to him and I said, look, we have an amazing podcast, but we need an even amazing uh, uh, sort of setting to, to, to conduct it in. And he said, come on in. So this is beautiful. Thank you to John. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, John. And, you know, it's funny because we met because you reached out to me on LinkedIn of all places. Yep. And so uh, I, I always like to, to talk about how uh, we come to be as as bringing on guests on the Creative Surveil. So can you talk a little bit about that, actually, about how you found me on LinkedIn? Absolutely. So apparently we had a mutual friend, and uh, your name popped up on my LinkedIn. And, you know, like you and I talked about it, I fundamentally believe a lot of times in life you don't know what's around the corner. And I saw your name pop up, and it said 80-20. And I was like, that's interesting. That, that's kind of intriguing. I want to see what this 80-20 is. Because I use 8020 in, in different contexts in, in, in sort of presentations and such. So then I looked into your background and I was like, no, this is really cool. This is the type of person that I want to talk to and, and have, a, have a good conversation as far as I'm concerned. I really appreciate that. And you're right because the 8020 principle, or also called the Pareto principle, is where the philosophy of 8020 records actually came from originally, was that concept that, you know, 80% of something comes from 20% of something else. And originally it was the idea of giving 80% of royalties to artists, mm. but then evolved to the point of how we can, you know, basically where's that 20% of efficiency that we can do 80% of the time? Like what is where, where is our mar- most efficient way of doing things? And just going from there. And like that's why we always been a very, uh, very much in the forefront of technology and all those aspects of things to do it the best way possible. Which I love because ultimately, you know, we'll talk about it, but my, my career is intended to support artists. Ultimately, in the end, you know, I, I work for Fender, which is an incredible company, uh, the most iconic guitar company in the world. And our slogan and our mission statement is, artists are angels and we give them wings to fly. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Oh, I wish I came up with that one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Fender, actually, because you have an incredible backstory. And you, actually, you have uh, talked about it quite a bit, actually, in a number of publications mm-hmm. and interviews. So uh, for, you know, for everyone listening right now, definitely go ahead and take a look at those for your entire backstory. But can you give, like, the short version of that? Yeah, absolutely. So complete serendipity, victim of circumstance. Uh, I was born in Texas to two students from Iran. After I was born, there was a revolution back home in Iran, and my parents had to make a decision. Do we stay in the United States or do we go back? And the decision was to stay. 
but they were on student visas, so they couldn't really afford to, to have a job, and they couldn't afford a six-month-old child. They made a decision to send me to Iran with my grandparents for a period of six months. The goal was send them for six months, then summon him back, and he'll come back to the U.S. I was born in the U.S., so I had a U.S. passport, U.S. citizen. I go to Iran when I was six months old with my grandparents, and I actually get stuck in Iran for seven years. I ended up not seeing my parents again until I was seven years old. Wow. Um, now, again, this is during a time that there was a war going on between Iran and Iraq. So as a, as a five, six, seven-year-old, seeing the war firsthand kind of puts life in perspective. You grew up really, really fast. And we found ultimately our way back to the United States and, and, and settled, settled in, in Maryland at the time. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. I know I am definitely jumping ahead here, but I do want to go into you know, where, how you end up with Fender in the, in the current role that you have. Complete serendipity. I mean, that, that's the thing. A lot of times I, I get this, wow, that is an incredible gig, such a cool gig. How did you land this? It was not intended. It was not, I, I didn't have a whiteboard and there wasn't a strategy as far as I'm going to land at Fender. I was working for a tech company back east and it was a series of tech companies and really I was, I was able to grow with them and the organization grew and I learned a lot of key traits such as the language of technology and I learned how to deal with programmers and Gen Zers and, and such. And we were buying a company in Arizona. And so I was stationed out of uh, Scottsdale for about six months working on the due diligence and then we did the acquisition, I did the post-acquisition integration when one day a recruiter completely out of the blue from Fender reached out to me on LinkedIn. <laughs> Back to LinkedIn. Really? Wow. Reached out to me on LinkedIn <laughs> saying, we see that you're here in Scottsdale. We love your tech background. Would you be interested in interviewing for an attorney position within Fender? This was exactly at the time that Fender was investing hundreds of millions of dollars in growing their digital presence. And none of the lawyers at the time spoke tech. I spoke the language of tech. That's incredible. Yeah. I've seen that happen too. Um, there were, uh, I think there was an interview with, I think, I'm trying to remember who it was, but it was somebody asking a question about Elon Musk mm -hmm. and about, I think it was, I could be wrong, but I think it was his mother. And they were asking, like, what, or one of his wives, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they asked him, like, um, what, uh, you allude to his success, and it was because he was able to take two things that he did really, really well and then combined it together. Mm -hmm. And I can see that for yourself, that it was your background both in tech and legal and combined it to a company that needed somebody who understood both of those spaces. 100% agree. I would add a third element to that. Okay. I think it's, it's, it's a tech, it's the legal background, but I think one of the most important things for me, it, it's sort of my philosophy on life as a whole, not just for my career, it's connecting to humanity. It's connecting to people. You know, behind every company, behind any organization, behind any government institution or whatever it is, is a person, is a human being. And, and fundamentally, the ability to connect to those humans and, and learn about the humans and learn about their story and build that connective tissue is, is, has been something that has always worked for me in my life. I mean, it really is true. And I think this, this transcends pretty much any industry is that it really is about connecting with people and the relationships that you have. They really ultimately give you the opportunities. Absolutely. 100%. I always say from the mailroom to the boardroom, treat everybody with the same amount of respect and ask them, what is your story? How did you get to where you are? Because believe it or not, we, we tend to focus on everybody who is perhaps perceived as, as having the top positions and they must have had the really interesting sort of life story. No, that's not particularly true. 
everybody has a really interesting life story as to where they got to. I like to, it's funny that you mentioned that because even the guests that I have, I like having a variety of not, not just high profile guests that have been very, very successful or, at, or have been in the industry for a very, very long time. But sometimes I like to talk to people that just got started because again, their story is fresh. It's new. They're just beginning. Yep. And they come at a very different perspective than somebody who's been in it for decades. So you're right. Everyone has their it has a different story to tell. Everyone has their own experiences and lessons that they've learned. And I think it's so important to 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 communicate that way. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. I definitely agree. And I love the fact that you're saying that it's not just a story of the experience. It's a story of those who are sort of building their story in the very early beginnings of it. That's exciting as well. Absolutely. So. Can you talk about then your role at Fender? Like, what is your day-to-day looking like as general counsel for Fender? Definitely. So we're a very complicated organization. You know, at first glance, people take a look at Fender and they say, it's a guitar. How complicated can it be? It is incredibly complicated. So we take raw materials, primarily wood, and we transform it into these incredible instruments and sell it across multiple borders in the world. I mean, we sell everywhere from Tokyo, Japan to Santiago, Chile. If we could sell into Antarctica, we would sell into Antarctica, but the market is not great there. So it is a very complex organization. It's as much a manufacturing organization as it is a digital organization because we have digital applications and digital amplifiers and software systems and digital audio workstations. So really my role is managing the legal needs of the organization on a global basis. Um, it is a function that essentially is a vehicle for progressing their business initiatives forward, whatever it may be, in any corner of the world that it may actually occur. Uh, that's what my role is, and, and my team is a fabulous sort of uh, support system to achieve that. That's incredible. Uh, I'm, sorry that I'm sure that it comes with a lot of challenges. Uh, anything that... Uh, Anything that you can give it, like you don't have to give specifics, of course, sure. but do you have any examples of like a challenge that comes up? I don't know if you remember during the pandemic, about six months or eight months into the pandemic, there was a, a shipping container in the Suez Canal that mm-hmm. actually ran into the embankment and, and tipped over. Yes. Well, we had like 14 containers on that. Oh, man. So we had amazing <laughs> guitars that were on their way to the market and fundamentally uh, they, they were stuck in the middle of the desert, under the desert sun and such. Wow. So I'm sharing that. There's to kind of show you that it's very complex. Um, You know, we get components from around the world. So that means that the smallest disruption from even the most obscure province in China has significant implications on our manufacturing process. If we don't have that widget, we can't make the guitar. Everything comes to a complete halt. Right. Wow, that's amazing. So talk about Fender Play Foundation, because that was something that, that you became the president of fairly recently, actually, the last, I would say, six months, if I remember correctly? It's been about eight months eight or months so. Time or so? flies. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. So can you talk about uh, getting into that role? 100%. So we fundamentally decided as an organization that we wanted to do more than just developing products and selling them. We wanted to shape the future of music. And how do you do that? Well, you go to the source, and the source is the next generation of players. It's the kids. It's the kids in school. Um, One of the examples that I always love to share is how hip-hop was birthed. And not many people know where hip-hop really came from. Not even hip-hop artists really know where hip-hop came from. And I'll give you a quick story about hip-hop's history. So hip-hop 
really was birthed by disco. I know it sounds quite shocking. Really? Absolutely. And, and hip-hop artists say, what do you mean? There's no way that hip-hop came from disco. Well, fundamentally, yes, it did. The DJs at that time in the five boroughs of New York, what they would do is they would take disco tracks and they would not play the part of the, of the track that, was, that had the lyrics. They would only play the part that had the drums. And that drum section, the solo drum section, was known as the break. And the kids that would dance to the break were known as the break dancers. Oh, That's where the term break dancing comes from. But this was only a select few number of actual DJs in the boroughs that could afford the equipment. It was very expensive. You had to have the turntable, you had to have the speakers and such. Not everybody had access to that. In the early 1980s, there was a massive blackout that occurred in New York. And for a few days, the city was covered in darkness, and a lot of the stores were actually looted, including the music stores, including equipment like turntables and speakers. Within six months from the time of the blackout, the famous blackout of New York City, some of the biggest pioneering DJs of hip-hop came about wow. because they got access to the equipment and the instruments. And so we sort of use this as, as a philosophy in the sense of to shape the next generation, we have to provide instruments to those that otherwise would not have access to it. Absolutely. Equitable access to music instru musical instruments and education is fundamentally what the foundation is about. We started with LAUSD, which is the um, Los Angeles Unified School District. Started with 1,000 kids. By the end of this year, it's 24,000. Wow. By the end of next year, it's 35,000 kids. That's incredible. Congratulations yeah. on that. That's Thank you very much. That's absolutely amazing. So how does that tie in then with, with your role as general counsel? Because you're essentially now doing both of those roles now. Is that correct or is it? Yeah, there's not a direct correlation. I did get a call one day from, from our executive team, our CEO, basically saying congratulations. And I said, congratulations for what? He said, you're the new president of the foundation. I said, thank you very much. With all due respect, I have no, no uh, 501c3 nonprofit experience. Why, why me? He said, well, fundamentally, you've shown the organization that you can take over business units in the organization, turn them around, make them successful hire people, make them happy, and, and ultimately achieve the goals. We want you to do the same with the foundation. And wow. so incredibly humbled by it. And one of the things I do want to talk about, too, is, you know, and, and thank you so much for the work that you do with the foundation, because I'm a very big believer in not only having children have access to music in general, but also having access to music education. And com a combination of those is extremely important. I was very fortunate that uh, I was in a household that uh, could afford uh, private piano lessons. So I had private lessons when I was five years old, learning the piano. And then when it came time to pick an instrument for school, obviously couldn't choose the piano, so I went to the trumpet. But I was very, very lucky in having the ability had, to do you so. You had access to it, yeah. I had access to yeah, it, right. Which is also actually very similar to Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. Mm-hmm. Bill Gates was, he went to high school in one of the only five high schools in the country at that time that had a computer lab. That's right. He had access to it. So he, he spent countless hours perfecting his knowledge of, of computer and programming and such. And you wonder, how did he become 
the greatest software pioneer of all time is because he had access to he it. He had access to it er early on. I mean, even Jobs, I mean, he was working at Atari like mm -hmm. for a while and had access to all the equipment there and he kind of kind of got start with that and yeah. and was as well. I mean, Absolutely. people don't realize realize that they were the co-creators of the game Breakout. Like that's, you know, they were doing that stuff, you know, <laughs> well into like their, you know, late teens early 20s. 100%. Before they even started Apple. So yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it as well is is getting that access and i feel that the earlier in your life you can get that access the you know the further you can go because of that reason because you can build upon it build i mean as you know it takes years to build yourself up to a certain point definitely definitely and what's interesting about it now too is uh we're definitely going di to dive into technology quite a bit here but uh the other thing i do want to mention is the access to technology as a whole i mean we've seen i would say a renaissance if you will of equipment and instruments to the degree that are becoming more and more affordable in general um, to the public, which also makes it uh, more available. So it's it's incredible to see that also happening, where we're just seeing it at such a scale across the board. Yeah, yeah. I think what's what's fascinating is we are at an intersection. We are at fundamentally the forefront of where the future is going as far as music uh, as a whole. So a really good friend of mine who who lives in in Scottsdale, Arizona, Rene De La Fuente, who's of Elevator 12 agency, responsible for... Yeah, doing this whole thing for us. Thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank, thank, you, thank you to Rene and, and his incredible agency. We always have these philosophical technology discussions, which is, which is um, things that I look forward to. Um, you know, we, we're looking at a stage where we are at the forefront of artificial intelligence, of machine learning of the metaphors, of Web 3.0 primarily, which is made up of blockchain. How is this going to shape the future of not only music, but musical instruments, the creation of music, the distribution of music, the consumption of music? Um, it's really exciting because I, I sort of, I, I look back to the time where it was probably around 1997, 98, as the internet was just becoming a thing. And there were different offerings, but we never really quite knew where this was ultimately going to go. And I think we're there now with respect to what the future for music holds. And it's, it's super exciting. It's very, very exciting time. And, you know, especially with AI and metaverse, and I think we see there's opinions on both sides on both of those subjects. Uh, let's talk about actually the metaverse first, because that was something that I feel like blew up really quick. And I think kind of like the hype died down a little bit, but I think that is still so much in its infancy and it's really, really exciting the potential where it goes. So, I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts on the metaverse in general? I always love to go back to human history and human psychology. Anytime in, in humanity's progression, you create an environment that, that humanity can come together and share their stories share their experiences, share their talents, share their music, you're going to basically take a step into the next generation of, of human social environments. Example, in the early stages of human development, it was the campfire, it was the fire, it was, it was the place where we cooked our food, it was the place where we told our stories and the legends were passed on generation after generation. You fast forward, that became ultimately the radio. In the early 20th century, families were gathered around the radio. 
the living room and the family room was stationed around the radio, and that then it became the television. And fundamentally, if you think about it, even to this day, I don't know whether you have it in your home or not, but a lot of individuals still have fireplaces in their home. Why? Why would you have a fireplace in your home when you have automated machine learning, AI engines powering your air conditioning and your heater? Why do you still have a fireplace? It's a vestigial trait of humanity. It is something that is within us. I think that the metaverse is that next step, which is it creates that environment that allows individuals to come together, not only within a vicinity of each other, but anywhere in the world, come together and again, share their stories, share their experiences and share their music. Until we get to the point that we, we really get to a product that is commercially viable, that is adopted by the masses, it's going to take some experimentation. It's going to take some time. Social media, Facebook wasn't the first social media platform. It took time to get there. And even you look at TikTok and Instagram, yep. there was a lot of predecessors until you get there. But I think ultimately, humanity will get there because we like to be, we're social creatures. We like Absolutely. to share. Absolutely. And what a better way to be social than like, you know, where the possibilities of the internet are limitless, truly. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, is that the experiences that you can have in the metaverse, you, you can't get anywhere else. I mean, one of the things that I felt was, was you know, at the pioneer end of it was with Fortnite specifically. And Fortnite has done this a number of times where they do Fortnite concerts, which I think is a brilliant strategy for, on, their, on their part of teaming up with major artists to do this entire experience in their world that they yep. have created. Because not only the world that they've created, but the culture that they've cultivated through Fortnite. And uh, I, I, mean, I saw some YouTube videos of it, and I mean, just the YouTube videos alone were just spectacular. Yeah, and this is a representation of really the next generation. We have to take a look at the youth that is being developed as we speak. I take a look at my kids. My daughter in particular, who's 10 years old, uh, Tara, um, she always says, Daddy, why, why do you never say my name in, in all these different uh, engagements you're in? Well, Tara, there you go. You got your name. Um, <laughs> we, we always have, um, I always like to ask her questions about why. Why do you do this that way? Why do you do that that way? And what's fascinating is we would have her friends over and her friends would be playing and then they would get bored. And then the friends would go home and the friends then all would get on Roblox or some other um, sort of uh, metaverse type of gaming experience, and they would play together for hours and hours nonstop. That is a powerful indicator to us as a society that fundamentally the next generation, that is going to be their existence. That is where they're comfortable. It's in the digital realm. So that's where they're going to create music and they're going to uh, consume music and consume concerts and and other uh, not just music any any other sort of um, entertainment. I agree, and it's it's you know I was also brought up on technology as well. And in fact, I remember you know even when I was very very young, my father would this dates me a little bit, but my father would teach me how to do a DOS command yeah. you know, to play C my, colon yeah, slash slash, slash yeah. yeah, and then to play my games right. And so technology has always been a very big part of my life as well. And I think there's and that's the thing, too, is I feel that some are concerned about, you know, our children where that's all their existence is, is on the digital realm. And I see that as, I see both being positives, right? And I think it really just comes down, down to how you're engaging with it yep. and how you're doing it. But I think that's the same thing is true with, you know, in, in real life interactions. I feel 
How do you feel about that? Because I feel that they're both very important. Anytime you look at humanity when it's faced a leap in technology, not, not a linear development in technology, but a leap in technology, there's fear. That's the immediate reaction. Example, when the 50-mile-per-hour train system was introduced to the world in New York, they had an advisory that pregnant women should not ride on the train because they were convinced that essentially it would cause birth defects, it would cause all sorts of undesirable consequences. Nowadays, pregnant women get on 600-mile-per-hour airplanes. Everything is okay. I think this is just sort of our defense mechanism. Anything that is very, very new and very much a leap in technology, we're, we're afraid of it. Um, I think there's nothing to be afraid of. I think it is exciting. I think that it will, whether it's the metaverse, whether it's blockchain, whether it's um, artificial intelligence, it will open up doors that we never thought possible, ever. The same way that in 1995, 6, 7, 8, the internet opened up doors we never thought possible. Right. I mean, think about it, too. I mean, even when you were talking about, like, the radio and television, they thought that was the demise of society because everyone exactly. was not going outside anymore right. and doing things. They were either, you know, gathering around the radio or just watching the television and saying, yep. that's going to rot your brain. Exactly. Right? And video games was the same thing, too. Like exactly. When video games came out, it was the same same thing then. And um, But, yeah, I think... I think that's always been the case, as you mentioned. Like, change is always a scary thing, but yeah. I try to look at it as an exciting thing, and I think it's important for us to to understand the possibilities, but also, you were mentioning before about having a fireplace is understanding where we came from as well. I think you, you need to, we under, have to understand the concept of a campfire and telling the stories and that, that genuine human connection as we progress as a society with all these wonderful tools and technologies that come about. It's a vestigial trait. Example, concerts, music concerts in the metaverse. It will allow individuals who otherwise would never really get the opportunity to see incredible artists in, on stage. It allows them to experience it, perhaps in a 3D virtual reality environment. But it still will not be as amazing if you were there in person and experiencing it in real time. I agree. And I think it's even goes further than that too is that you can go to the exact same concert in person yep. and then afterwards experience that same concert in the metaverse and have a totally different experience 100 percent. you know that's the other thing too when you're talking about meta you know the technology of metaverse is that you might have you know even had good seats but but the seat that you have in the metaverse is right front and center yep. you may have the experience of being in this amazing crowd of people but you are unable to engage with them in comparison to doing it in the metaverse. Absolutely. You would not be able to, you may experience the amazing lighting and, and pyrotechnics that a show has in, in, in person, but you might have the entire stage coming off the ground and floating or something like that. I mean, again, going back to, to Fortnite is <laughs> they had Travis Scott become a giant and just like walking around right. everyone, right? You know, so you can literally do things that is just is physically impossible to do in the you know outside of the digital realm. I, I hundred percent agree with you. And to tie it back to sort of providing that exposure and access to the next generation, I love history, all sorts, not just music history, but just history as a whole. When you take a look at the history of country music, country music, one of the most pivotal moments of its mass exposure was from a doctor who was based in Texas. 
And he had this unique medical procedure that he wanted to advertise. And no matter how much he tried, the local newspapers and the local radio would not give him the opportunity to advertise this, this medical procedure. It was a controversial medical procedure. So essentially what he did was he went uh, to a Texas town right on the border with Mexico, went over the border and purchased a massive radio tower in Mexico. And this radio tower had the capability of projecting 500,000 watts. Essentially, you could hear it from space. Wow. And he tried to get different genres of music to, to get permission to play those genres on that radio station, and nobody wanted to give him the opportunity because of the controversial medical treatment. The only genre that was up and coming at the time was what we know today as country music, but it wasn't known as country music. It was that 500,000-watt radio tower that allowed the music of the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers, who were the founding uh, uh, fathers and mothers of country music, to be heard by up-and-coming, young, aspiring musicians such as Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, and Waylon Jennings. So in the end, it's exposure. The metaverse may perhaps give exposure to that child in the corner of Southeast Sudan, who otherwise would never be able to attend a concert, say, in the United States or in Europe, suddenly maybe the next generation or the next genre of music comes from that person. It's exposure. Yeah, it's very, very true. And the other thing, too, is that, you know, especially when it comes to the metaverse, is that I feel this is a huge opportunity for, for artists that may not be able to do a stadium-sized event that yep. has enormous costs that are involved, something like that where they could build something that's in the metaverse and have this extraordinary experience without necessarily having to you know, put all, like the enormous budget costs that would have to be involved to do something Absolutely. similar in the, the physical realm. The democratization of, of sort of the ability for others to consume your music, which otherwise you wouldn't have the ability to do so. Exactly. Absolutely. So let's talk about AI. Yeah. And we were talking about before again about, you know, you know, how change is scary. And I know that a lot of people right now are talking about AI because especially, I mean, it's interesting. A lot of the technologies have been around for a while, but it, in the last six to 10 months, I mean, it has boomed as far as how it's being implemented in the mainstream yep. of, of your everyday person. And to me, I don't know how you feel about this, but like to me, it's that this is the it. Like this is the point where, okay, now AI is going to be a part of our lives moving forward. Yep. Absolutely, 100% agree. I think it's not only going to be part of our lives, like you said, it's going to define the future of our lives and the future of humanity. Um, I always go back to, to history, and I, and I love to go back to music. And I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you to sort of explain how I see the power of AI. When you take a look at the history of rock and roll, and again, in this incredible space here, there's, there's a whole bunch of pictures of incredible rock and roll stars. Um, when you look at the birth of rock and roll, rock and roll is the love child of the Mississippi Delta sound, which was the sound of the freed black slaves. And the mixture of that sound with the sound of Ulster. Ulster is a region from Scotland and Ireland. These were the individuals that experienced religious persecution and potato famine, and they immigrated from Scotland and Ireland to North America and they settled down the Appalachian Mountains, ultimately finding their way to the South. And they brought with them many things, including poetry, 
and limericks, and they brought with them the European fiddle and what they call in the South the fiddling music that came with them because that's what they knew and that was their music. When that went to the South, that music was combined with the music of the Mississippi Delta blues. And that gave birth to rock and roll. Elvis was actually initially touted as a country star. It wasn't, there was no such concept as rock. There was no word as rock and roll. Rock and roll was, a, was sort of a slang word that existed at the time. But he was touted as a country star. Why? Because he was the perfect combination between the Mississippi Delta blues music and the music of, of country music which came from, from Europe. Imagine how many things had to occur in history in order for this combination to occur. You had to have potato famine, religious persecutions in Scotland and Ireland. They immigrate to the United States. You had to have slavery. You had to have slaves be brought from Africa to the New World and for them to bring an instrument which at the time was completely unfamiliar to the New World, which was the banjo. The banjo comes from Africa. And then for slavery to ultimately be ended and the blacks of the South to be able to have their music heard by the Europeans and the combination give birth to rock and roll. What if we're able to use an incredibly powerful technological innovation to simulate potential future combinations of cultures and sounds of those cultures and music of those cultures that would open up avenues and doors we never thought possible? And I think that's what AI can do. I I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, even from a from a small aspect, like even where it is now, think about for creators especially, to me, this eliminates a lot of the what, you know, the quote unquote writer's block. I mean, just that alone. Think about how many w are struggling to express themselves, but something's preventing them from doing so. Yeah. yeah. And now we have an assist, you know, something that will assist us with that entire process, whether it's uh, going through the, the brainstorming process, the thought process, trying to prove upon what we're experimentation doing. Process. Experimentation Anything along those lines. I mean, now that we would either rely on somebody else to be there and have that chemistry with somebody to, to be able to go over that hurdle, yeah. we have a tool that will do it, you know, that will help, help us out that can sometimes take seconds, if not minutes. Absolutely. And I mean, that opens up all kinds of creative possibilities. And especially those who are probably have in beautiful, beautiful ideas, but just don't know exactly how to express them. 100%. I would liken it to the individuals or organizations that when the computer became potentially a tool for American business, they avoided it. And then later on, when the Internet became a tool for American business and people, individuals avoided it. I think this is something you cannot avoid. And the ones that actually adopt it and adapt to it and utilize that powerful tool, they're going to shape the future of, of, of humanity. Oh, 100%. I mean, you're, I, to put it bluntly, you're going to be left in the dust. I mean, that's the thing. It's like whenever, you know, I think it's important to understand the, the responsibility of these, the, these tools and technologies but to avoid it completely, I mean, yep. it's it's inevitable. It is going to change, like you said, not only just the way we do things in period, but you know, also just on a smaller level how business works. Hundred percent. You know, I, I believe there was a movie called The Crow, um, not the Brandon Lee movie. Okay. From the nineties, Th there was a new movie that was completely generated based on a script that was typed 
by a human, um, uploaded into an AI system, and the AI system actually created a movie, a motion, uh, sort of uh, motion capture type of movie. It actually won an Oscar for short film. I mean, that wow. is incredible. And this is just at its infancy. Can you imagine? Absolutely. And the other thing, too, right, is that, you know, it is a tool at the end of the day like anything else, right? Even a computer, it does a lot of things, but doesn't do it, it can't do everything. Correct. Right? It still Absolutely. requires human engagement, human interaction. You still have to understand what instructions to give it to get something out of it. I mean, again, with tech background, 100%. right? One of the things that uh, is a very common phrase for programmers is garbage in and garbage out, yep. right? So yep. if you don't give it, good instructions you're not going to get anything great in return out of it and i think you bring up a very good point in the sense that with technology to be successful it has to still have the human fingerprint you know if we, we talked about creation of music and creation of movies ai can be used as a tool but you still need the human fingerprint in in sort of guiding that tool why because ai doesn't have the most powerful a foundation of creation, which is human emotion. It's the happiness, it's the sadness, it's love, it's love, it's heartbreak. All of that is something AI doesn't have. So you still, you still need that. Um, and we earlier talked about Steve Jobs. When you take a look at the success of Apple, Apple is successful not because of just making good products. They make good products that connect with humanity. Um, the, it has the human fingerprint on it. It has the the, it serves the purpose for, for human beings to do things that they, they like to do with the products that work for them. Right, exactly. I mean, that you know, Steve Jobs had the intuition to making products that people felt comfortable with. And, I mean, that was a big part of it was the design of the product. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, that, again, that, that is our human footprint. It's like, how do you make that decision? I mean, AI can make some, definitely can make the, a number of decisions. But at the end of the day, as you mentioned, is that it's that human fingerprint yep. on that to Absolutely. make that decision okay does this resonate with me do i feel that this is going to resonate with others yep. and that still requires you know a, a human to make those kind of decisions absolutely but i still think that going back to is that you know there you know i'm not a, des a uh, I, I can't design for anything right I, i'm not a drawer i'm not an animator or anything but now especially with with uh text uh to image generation mm -hmm. I can type in anything that I want. I just have to understand. I have to be very descriptive to get a good result. Yep. But now I don't have to necessarily have the skill set of drawing to be able to have my ideas come to life. No, but you have the creativity. Right. You're having the idea of what you want to sort of achieve, and you're, you're translating that into written word, and you're allowing the system to be able to perhaps bring that into fruition. There, absolutely. And then the, there comes the next part, too, is that, okay, that's all sounds great and all, but this AI technology is taking it from what already exists. Mm -hmm. And I find that is a very interesting because then we get into the, the ethical aspect of it where it comes to uh, you know potential copyright infringement, both on it, both images and as well as text. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about where your thoughts are on that? Absolutely. It's, it's going to be um, uncharted territory, especially for the legal system, because... Typically, the legal system is at least 15 years behind anything that's happening. Now, take AI, which is growing at an exponential rate, not linear, exponential. Um, ChatGPT4, its capability compared to the prior versions is exponentially greater. So 
there's a lot of uncharted territory to be figured out, but they will fundamentally figure it out. It's like I go back to the internet. When the internet first came out, there had to be rules and regulations created about controlling the internet um, to make sure that there's no illegal activities occurring on the internet. There's no child pornography and these types of things. These had to be figured out. When the internet was being created, nobody was thinking about, well, how do we protect against this and that? No, that through time is, is essentially what came about and we created the guardrails, if you will. It's going to be the same thing with AI. It's, you have this tool, but you may need some guardrails to make sure it just doesn't run out of control. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that I've been uh, reading is about is that there are a number of tech companies that are already taking that approach where they're having internal conversations about how to utilize this technology responsibly mm -hmm. because they want to already be on the forefront before even you know go, goes into the legalities behind it and yeah. trying and trying to be that role model if you will to everybody else saying yes we understand how powerful that is this is we know how this can be abused mm -hmm. so let's make like a conscious decision about how this should be used in an ethical way again you take a look at fear of new technologies i mean the automobile eventually when the automobile um, development got to the stage where they could actually create easily 1200 horsepower vehicles and make them common on the streets they chose not to <laughs> because yeah. it just didn't make any sense right. right so you you sort of you develop that through time I sort of have an optimistic opinion on humanity. Perhaps <laughs> maybe those sentiments are not I, shared I by too, others, yes. but yeah. <laughs> I definitely do as well. And I think, I think this is the thing is that at the end of the day, I think that, you know, for the, uh, it, as a whole, right, we're always looking out for, you know, making sure that we better ourselves and better our futures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, and then there's, two, I think there's a couple of approaches, some recluse and rightfully so, because they want to be very protective and yep. making sure that we're not, you know, making rash decisions that have you know, negative sure. consequences the in the future. It's all about and the having balance. that balance. Exactly. Then there's the other side too of the optimism of making sure that we are pushing ourselves and getting ourselves out of that comfort zone yep. so that we can we can do more incredible things as a society. Absolutely. I agree. So I do want to actually kind of bring it back to to you for a second. And uh, I do want to congratulate you because you've done a number of speaking engagements at this point. Um, but I think the creme de la creme is TED Talk. So congratulations <laughs> on that. That's Thank amazing. you very much. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of this was just completely by serendipity. Um, Kevin Davis, who's an incredible editor at the uh, ABA Journal, which is a very reputable magazine for, um, for the legal profession, uh, he did a piece about the journey of my life and everything that I covered as far as separation from parents and uh, growing up in a war-torn country and such and to where I got to. And from that piece, it, it, it got picked up by so many different venues and one of the individuals that picked up on it was, was Ted, Ted Talk. And, and they said, your, your story is incredible. We have this one particular segment that's entitled Origins, um, how your origin impacts, has impacted your trajectory in your life and, and your current state and your future. And I, we'd love for you to speak. And I said, it's been my dream to speak. Absolutely. So this was actually filmed about two weeks ago. Um, we're still waiting for the actual video to be approved and then ultimately be distributed. But it was an amazing experience. Just the ability to share the story. And it was an honor.
That's incredible. Congratulations. That is Thank a you. massive, massive honor. So we're going to wrap this up here, and I have a couple of fun questions that I, I like intentionally it. did not tell you ahead of time. So uh, number one is, uh, what was the first concert that you ever went to? The Rolling Stones. Oh, that's a really good RFK one. Stadium, Washington, D.C. Year, I can't quite remember. It was in the late, mid-90s. I want to say 96, 7-ish. Um, it was incredible. Wow. You set the bar very high as your I, first it was concert. Just, yeah, that, that, was, that was the first experience, and it was just incredible. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so what is your go-to song to play or sing in the car? That's a great question. Bohemian Rhapsody. Ooh, that's a good one, too. Bohemian Rhapsody. That's a real... It's okay. just so, like, varied all over the place, operatic to... to I have to ask, when, when it comes to, the, to that one point where everyone bashes their heads, do you, do you, go, <laughs> do you have Bob in the car? At least in, in, in solo, yes. Not okay. when anybody else is okay, fair, I only bob, bob alone. So, me too. I yeah. only bob alone, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, last question is, if you were to only give one piece of advice, and I would say to anybody who's looking to get into the music industry, but if you want to even generalize it even further, go for it. What would that one piece of advice be? It might be one piece of advice with a couple subparts. I would say connect to humanity, connect to humans, no matter what it is, whether it's a, it's a record label you're trying to get in contact with, a producer, whatever it may be. See who the people are behind that organization. Find out their story, learn about their story, and connect with them. And we've all gone through challenges in our life. We've all had difficulties. We've all had certain hands that were dealt to us that were great hands and other hands that were terrible hands. We only become stronger through difficulty and challenges. Harness those experiences that you had. Just because it was a difficult experience, it actually made you stronger. So connect to humanity and, and just understand that life is a journey and the good is good, but bad experiences also make you stronger. I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so, so much. I'm really thank glad you. we got a chance to do this. Thank you so much, Mike. Crystal. Thank you so much for listening to Creatives Prevail. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave us a review. They are an immense help. Now go out there and make something happen.